the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. But every single one of us have a weak wall. And every single one of us have a weak gate within that wall. In other words, if we were all honest, we could probably come up with one area in our lives that is the weak point, that is the most vulnerable, that if we're not careful, our undoing will be that one weak entry point. And I want you to imagine, if you will, that if your life is somewhat like, you know, a fortified city, there are gates and there are different entry points, and which one potentially is the weakest that needs to get your most attention? This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Second Kings. While many are quick to recognize the positive characteristics of others, we typically shy away from recognizing weaknesses. Whether it's acknowledging the weaknesses in others or in ourselves, it's crucial that we do so, especially in our own lives. In today's message, Pastor Gary teaches us the importance of recognizing weaknesses in our lives and fortifying them with our utmost attention. In our study, we learn that just as with the many kings of Israel, no matter how great some of our accomplishments might be, we all have our weaknesses. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary for part one of today's message, Principles from a Good King. Second Kings chapter 15. Uh, let's start there first. I'm going to begin in verse uh, 32, and this is about Jotham. He becomes the tenth king of Judah. So here in verse 32, it says, In the second year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother's name was Jerusha, daughter of Zadok. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord. That's an important statement. We'll come back to it. And as for the other events of Jotham's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? In those days... The Lord began to send Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, against Judah. Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David, the city of his father. And Ahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. And now go to Second Chronicles 27. And again, as I mentioned in previous studies here through the, through the period of the kings, one of the benefits we have 
in the Bible is that we have really two records that complement each other on the story of the kings. And so here in Second Chronicles 27, we also see record about the same guy, Jotham, king of Judah. Uh, the, whole chap the whole chapter is devoted to him, but I'm going to read just verse 2 and verse 6. Look at verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. But unlike him, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. We'll talk about that. And then verse 6 says that Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before the Lord his God. Now let's go back here to 2 Kings 15 and we'll start there. Well, if you've been with us through the study of the kings, you will know by now that uh, we're studying a period of time in Israel's history where they are divided after civil war. So you have the kingdom to the north, which is known by Israel, the name Israel, the kingdom to the south, known as Judah, and you have the Jewish people divided with two separate kings. And over the course of the period of the monarchy, the divided kingdom, there were in total 19 kings to the north in the kingdom of Israel. And there were 19 kings to the south in the kingdom of Judah, plus one murderous mammal queen. We talked about her last week, Athalia, okay? So you have a total of 38 kings between the north and the south and one queen. And among all 38 kings, there were only eight good ones. Only eight. And by the way, all eight good kings were from the, from the southern kingdom of Judah. Not a single good king was in the northern kingdom of Israel. Not a single one. They, they were mostly wicked. There were only eight who were considered good. And even of those eight who were considered good kings, there was only one who did not mar his testimony or tarnish his legacy in some way. Seven out of the eight good kings were good, but with an asterisk after their name. Because they were relatively good, but they did a few things that were not so good. And so they go down in the record books with an asterisk. They were good, but there's a little asterisk there. They, they did a couple of things that weren't so good. It's kind of like, you know, when you look back in the record books, okay, Mark McGuire, great baseball, great athlete, but there's an asterisk after his name. Lance Armstrong, great athlete, but there's now an asterisk after his name, okay? That's the way these good kings were. There were some good kings, but there's a little footnote that they weren't always so good. There was only one out of all 38 kings and one queen who was good from beginning to the end and did not mar his testimony and did not tarnish his reputation. And that's this guy in today's study. Jotham. Of all people, who would have thought? Who even knows about Jotham, you know? You ask the common person in church, you know, name some kings of Israel. David, Solomon, uh, maybe Saul, but Jotham who? That's this Jotham here. And what's interesting is that in spite of the fact that he's the only good king in the whole history of the kings, who was good from beginning to end, there's very little written about him. We don't know very much about him at all. In 2 Kings, he gets seven verses total in, in chapter 15. Seven verses, that's it. In 2 Chronicles 27, he gets nine verses total. That's it. And besides that, there are just passing references to his name, Isaiah 1.1, Hosea 1.1, and Micah 1.1. And the only reason he's mentioned in those verses is because the prophetic ministry of Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah occurred during the time when Jotham was king of Judah. So they just mention him in their opening chapters. Oh, Isaiah prophesied during the reign of, of Jotham. And besides that, the guy's not mentioned anywhere else. Not even a passing reference in the New Testament. The only good king 
And all he gets is seven verses and nine verses and a couple of passing references. And yet, contained within his short story here are some pretty important things. Now, this much we do know about him. He was thrust into the limelight at a relatively young age. Probably around the age of 18, his father, King Uzziah, who was also considered one of the good kings with an asterisk after his name, when Jotham was about 18 years of age, his father Uzziah was stricken by the Lord with leprosy because of what his daddy didn't do so well. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And when his father was stricken with leprosy, he was secluded in his own home. We never see daylight again. This guy, because of leprosy, they were isolated and quarantined. And so his 18-year-old son started ruling the kingdom just administratively behind the scenes in the absence of his father. And he would do that for about, historians believe, seven years. So from the time Jotham was 18 until he was 25, he administrated the kingdom in his father's absence. But then when he was 25, his father died. And then Jotham became king of Judah in his own right. And he would reign, the story tells us here, 16 years. He would die at the age of 41. He was a good king from beginning to end, but all we get from his story here is that he was relatively a quiet king. He was a quiet but effective king. Uh, he wasn't flashy at all. There's nothing about this guy that was, you know, seeking attention or glory. There was nothing particularly, you know, ambitious in, in the sense of wanting people's attention. He was very quiet but effective. Uh, besides building a couple of towns and a few towers and having a few military victories. The rest of the record here is very quiet on this guy. And so his reign, as good as it was, doesn't have much to go on. But what we can see here, I think, are three important principles that this good king lived by that are worth emulating. And the first principle that we see about this guy's life here is found back here in 2 Kings 15. I want you to look at the last sentence of verse 35. It says that Jotham rebuilt the upper gate of the temple of the Lord. Jotham rebuilt the upper gate. I think if you have a King James Bible, it might say the higher gate of the temple of the Lord. So for you note-takers, as, as we look here at the life of Jotham, his name in Hebrew is Yotam. It means Yahweh or God is perfect. He's the 10th king of Judah and the only good king among the kings of Israel and Judah. And when you look at some of the principles that he lived by, let's learn from the principles of this good king. First thing we see here in this story is that he strengthened what was weak. He assessed the defensibility of the city of Jerusalem, and he examined where there were potential vulnerable spots in the city wall and among the defense, and then he shored it up. He fortified the city, and what he focused on was the upper gate. We're talking the northern wall, the upper gate of the northern wall. Now, this may not look like much, but I, I think there's a good parallel here for us, and I want to first explain the importance of walls and gates in an ancient city. And, and some of this is, you know, a no-brainer. The first point of defense for any city was the fortification of a wall. Ancient cities typically had walls. And, and you would build a wall as high as you could and as wide as you could because the higher and wider it was, the more defense that you had. But the weakest point in any city wall 
were the gates because those were the entry points. And so if an enemy wanted to attack a city and it couldn't scale the wall or tunnel the wall or knock down the wall, it would focus on the gates of a city. Those were the weakest points of the wall. Now, know something in addition to the city of Jerusalem, because this is important to the story as well. city of Jerusalem was built on a hill called Mount Moriah. It's built on a, on a mount. There are four different mounts in, in Jerusalem. The mount that the city is built on is Mount Moriah. It slopes dramatically on the southern end. And so when they built the city wall, the southern wall of the city was more naturally able to be defended because in addition to having a 30-foot wall, it was built on a 90-foot slope. So no enemy would try to attack the southern side of the city of Jerusalem because you have a 90-foot slope and you have a 30-foot wall, so you got 120 feet to try to, to, try to span, and, and that's ridiculous. So enemies would typically attack Jerusalem from the north, and the reason was because when the city of Jerusalem was built... It took advantage of the natural slope of the south, but on the north it was built on the peak. So all that it had then was a 30-foot wall. There were no slopes to build the advantage of, of the defense of the city of Jerusalem. So historically, when you look at ancient foreign nations that attacked Jerusalem, they always, without exception, attacked from the north. Because the northern wall was the weakest wall in the city of Jerusalem. Now, with that in mind, if the northern wall is the weakest wall in the city of Jerusalem, then the northern gate in the northern wall is the weakest point within the entire city. And what Jotham did was, when he surveyed, what is our potential vulnerable spot here? He realized it's the upper gate. Because the northern wall is the weakest point, and the upper gate is the weakest point of the weakest wall. And so we're going to give our attention there, and we're going to strengthen that, and we're going to fortify that. Now, here's how it translates for me. Our lives, in a similar way, you know, are, are to be a fortified city, so to speak. But every single one of us have a weak wall, and every single one of us have a weak gate within that wall. In other words, if we were all honest, we could probably come up with one area in our lives that is the weak point that is the most vulnerable, that if we're not careful, our undoing will be that one weak entry point. And I want you to imagine, if you will, that if your life is somewhat like, you know, a fortified city, there are gates and there are different entry points, and which one potentially is the weakest that needs to get your most attention? For some, it might be the eye gate. The eye gate. The eye gate was a point of vulnerability for David. It was a point of vulnerability for his son Solomon, for Samson, for a lot of people. It's the reason why Job would say in Job 31 verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. But the gate of the eyes is not just a gate that is potentially weak and related to the area of lust. It could also be related to the area of covetousness. You know, you have your eyes and you look and you see things that don't belong to you and you want them or envy. You see things that, that other people have that you don't think they should have that you feel entitled to have. And so the eye gate can be a potential vulnerable entry point that we have to strengthen. Remember, the fall of humanity started with the eye gate. In Genesis 3, 6, it says that when the woman, when Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, 
She took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The, the, the fall of humanity first started with the eye gate. She saw. By the way, some people have asked, you know, why is it that God put that one tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and said, don't eat of this one tree, you're free to eat of all the other trees, but don't eat of this one tree, because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The death process will begin. Why did God have to do that? Why didn't God just say, eat them all, and everything's good? Here's the reason. God put that one tree there because he wants a relationship with us to be based on love, not on law. He doesn't want us to be robotic or just, you know, mandated. So, so here's what you get to do, and so just do it. No, he, gives, he plants that one tree to offer his choice because when we have choice, we have the freedom to hopefully choose him, sadly reject him, but then the relationship will be based on love in response to his love, not based on this legal requirement that you were now just, you know, robotic in your relationship. So that's the reason he put it in there. But the downfall of humanity begin with the eye. And it is the reason why Jesus is very harsh in his term concerning the potential for the eye to be a sin issue for us. When he said in Mark 9, 47, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Wow. That's some serious language. Now, please, before you run home and take out spoons and start plucking out your eyeballs, okay? He's not speaking literally here, okay? If it were literal, then all of our ushers would look like pirates. <laughs> Arg, you want a bulletin? Arg, here's a seat for you. But anyway, and then they would say to me, and you wouldn't have either eye, Pastor Gary, but that is true. But he's not speaking literally here. How do we know? Because listen, if, I ask you honestly, if you were to take out both of your eyes, would that remove the problem of lust? No, because lust is a heart issue. The eyes are just the gate to the heart. What Jesus was saying there was not something literally. He was speaking with hyperbole. He's saying with exaggeration. Listen, deal seriously with this potential to wreck your life. Recognize the weakness and the vulnerability of the eye gate. There may be a weakness in your life related to the ear gate, where you love to hear things. And you, and you give place to rumors, and you, and you listen to gossip, and you entertain lies, and you love flattery, and you feed on that, and the things that you hear and that you listen to. And maybe it's what you don't listen to. Because remember, Jesus indicted his own generation because, because he said, you are ever hearing but never understanding. You hear, but you're not heeding. And even the people of Jesus' day, he says, listen, they're hearing the truth, but they are rejecting it, and they are deliberately, intentionally turning a deaf ear to the truth. It's not just what we hear, it's what we don't hear that could potentially be the weakness of our lives. Maybe it's the mind gate. Maybe your struggle is your thought life, where you, you, you seem to, to let run impure thoughts, or vengeful thoughts, or hateful thoughts, or prejudicial thoughts, or prideful thoughts, or angry thoughts, and, you, and you're just allowing your mind to just kind of do whatever it wants to do. It. And let me just say here at this point that there are some people who incorrectly think that I can think whatever I want as long as I don't act on it. All sin is not simply action. Sometimes it can be attitudes. And that is the reason why Paul urge, urges us in 2 Corinthians 10:5 to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. 
Because our thought life, sin generally originates in the mind first. And then we act on it. And if we don't rein in our thought life, then we have a greater tendency then to act on those things. And that's why also in Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Colossians 3, 2, it says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. And, and it's also the reason why Paul would write in Philippians 4, 8, and I love this because this is great advice for people who have a hard time reigning in their thoughts. He says, okay, let me give you a good list here of what you should be thinking on, okay? So Philippians 4, 8, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is praiseworthy or excellent, think on these things. So we need to focus our minds on the things that are true and lovely and noble and praiseworthy and excellent and right and, and rein in our thought life. Harness those thoughts because maybe our mind can be that gate that is a weak entry point where we're most vulnerable. So what he did here was he strengthened that which was weak. And I think it's a good in principle reminder to us to assess the weak areas of our lives and to give special attention to those vulnerable places and strengthen those things, strengthen those areas. The second thing that we see in his life here is that he humbled what was proud. And for the rest of this, you can go to Second Chronicles 27 again, Second Chronicles 27. And I want you to notice here in verse 2 that we read earlier what I mean by how he humbled what was proud. Because in verse 2, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as his father Uzziah had done. And then the account here in Chronicles adds, but unlike him, unlike his father Uzziah, he did not enter the temple of the Lord. Okay, so what is that about? Well, here's a quick synopsis of his father. We'll talk more about King Uzziah when we get into the book of Second Chronicles, uh, but here's a quick synopsis of who he was. Very successful king, Listed among the good kings. There's an asterisk after his name. But listed among the good kings. He ruled for 52 years. That's almost three times as long as what his son Jotham will rule. Uh, very prosperous. He built towns. He, he built towers. He cultivated the agriculture and expanded that. He expanded the military. Uh, he built cisterns, dug cisterns. The, the guys reign very prosperous, very powerful, and the, the kingdom of Judah flourished under the reign of King Uzziah. But the problem is that after 52 years, or somewhere just before that, he got so full of himself that all of his power went to his royal head. And so as the king, he started doing things that the king had no business doing. And the primary thing that he did that was so grievous against the Lord was he acted like a priest. And one day he walked into the temple of the Lord and he acted like a priest. He took uh, incense and he burned it on the altar of incense. And he functioned in the role of the priest, which was only exclusively the right of those who were of the priestly line and who had been anointed as priests. And he goes in there, he just kind of does whatever he jolly well pleases, and he's burning incense to the Lord. And the priests all come in and they're like, what do you think you're doing? He's like, what does it look like I'm doing? 
Like, it looks like you're burning incense to the Lord. That's exactly what I'm doing. Well, you shouldn't be doing that. You're not a priest. Well, I'm the king, and I can do whatever I jolly well want. And as he's saying all this, the Bible says he goes into a rage with the priests. As he's saying all this, the Bible says that the Lord struck him with leprosy, and it breaks out on his forehead. And the priests are looking at him. They're like, this is not going to be a good day for him. What a fantastic time we've had studying 2 Kings together today. Don't forget to join us next time as we continue to dig into the story of God, working through history and nations to shape, discipline, and preserve His people, Israel. We at Cornerstone Connection would love the opportunity to serve you further as God writes your own story in His redemptive plan. We have companion resources for you on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc where Pastor Gary offers a deeper look into several of his studies to help you gain a better understanding of the Word. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take us anywhere with a mobile app. Cornerstone Chapel is located in Leesburg, Virginia, and we'd love for you to join us for weekend services or our Wednesday night Bible study and fellowship time. Our Sunday services begin at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m., and Wednesday nights begin at 7 p.m. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, feel free to call 703-771-1500. We continue to pray for you that you would understand the greatness of God's love for you. We have loved our time together today and invite you to join us again for the next edition of Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, still you know you're not alone. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.